1 to 10 this morning. We finish the letter of 2 Peter tonight and next Sunday morning we begin what I trust is going to be a rich and rewarding experience for you as I know it will be for me. As the pastor will be preaching through for the next uh, indefinite period of time, I haven't really dated it. It may be until school is out through the writings of the Apostle John. Between now and the end of the year, I'll be preaching Sunday mornings and nights from the Gospel of John. The most beautiful, perhaps in many ways the most moving of all the Gospel accounts of the Lord Jesus' life. And then beginning in January, I will continue in the Gospel of John on Sunday morning and on Sunday nights for about five months. We're going to be looking at the book of Revelation as it was written by the Apostle John. I'm excited about that and want you to pray for me as we move in that direction with our study of God's Word together. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he challenged us to be ready to meet a tremendous demand that would be made upon us. He gave us what our basic responsibility is as Christians and as a church, which is to live by, to teach, and to preach one thing, the Word of God in its entirety, no additions, no deletions, as God has sent it down to us. Chapter 2 tells us why these things are so important, that we be ready and that we live and teach and preach the Word. That is because Peter said in his day, which was before the end of the century in which Jesus died, that false teachers had already infiltrated the church watering down the Word of God, taking part of it, leaving part of it, and substituting for God's authority things which were man-made. And now in chapter 3, he begins to counteract one of their most devastating false teachings as their doctrine that denies the Word has spread, Peter says, even to the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of final judgment. The Gnostics, these knowers, these false teachers had started out by saying that in this life it didn't matter what you did with your body because matter, anything physical was evil and only spiritual things were what mattered and so you could take your body and do anything that you wanted to do and it didn't make any difference. Well, it is a very short step from there to saying if there's no such thing as sin because it doesn't matter what you do with your body, then this doctrine of some kind of judgment at the end of time is also false and useless. From the very beginning, when Jesus ascended to the heavens and these angels said, Why tarry ye looking into the heavens? This same Jesus who you have seen go will in like manner come again. From that moment until this, the great motivation of the church to minister has been the urgency of judgment has been an understanding that judgment will come, that men are lost, that hell is a reality, and that one day the last tick will sound on the clock of God and time as we know it will end. They had said, first of all, it didn't matter what you did. Now they said, there's no judgment. Just go ahead and forget about that. Live it up, for God will have no reckoning for us. Now I'm reminded reading the book of 2 Peter, that moral laxity, moral lapse, immorality, sin 
in the lives of many people always has the support of false doctrine. You see, it always starts the same way. Something is encountered in God's Word that someone doesn't like, and they say, well, that doesn't apply. Or that doesn't have any authority. And people literally and actually try to usurp the throne of God by deciding humanly what God has given us divinely and trying to say when it applies and when it doesn't. Moral collapse always begins with false doctrine. Peter affirms that his coming again is an urgent reality and that judgment which comes along with it is an iron-clad cinch. It will happen. It is coming. And because of that, he wants to counteract these teachings. And as he has done before, he begins this discussion by calling us for the fourth time in his two brief letters to consider the authority of God's Word. Notice in verses 1 and 2, we are told to recall the Word. Let us simply see what Peter has to say to us. This is the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. He tells us to recall the word as in chapter 1 verse 13 of 2 Peter. He says that he is going to stir us up. It is a word which means to rouse up from sleep, to stir from slum, slumber, to make alert and ready for the combat. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he said, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling or this tabernacle to stir you up by way of reminder. We need to be stirred up to realize how great the threat is. It is a threat to the future of God's work these false teachers who explain away what God's Word says and substitute man-made things for it. He calls the mind he wants to see in them stirred up, a sincere mind. It's a very colorful word in the Greek. And it, what it means literally is that when a certain item is unfolded and examined under the sunlight, it will be found to be spotless and pure. He is not saying that we are pure or that we are spotless, but that God's will for us by the presence of Jesus in us and by abiding in His Word is that we be spotless. Jesus said in John 17 when He prayed to the Father on behalf of His disciples that we are made clean through the truth. And then in that prayer, he said, Thy word is truth. So we are cleansed and made pure by our relationship to God's word. Now verse 2 is very important in the Bible because it is the first time in the scriptures that the writings of the apostles are put on the same level with the writings of the Old Testament. And isn't it interesting how things go full circle? Today there are some Christians who are spiritually illiterate because they have no knowledge of the Old Testament. 
And they justify that by saying we are a New Testament church and when Jesus died, everything else passed away. Folks, that's a lie straight from the pit of hell. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn in two and that meant one thing, that salvation comes by the blood of Jesus. I would remind you that Jesus Christ said, heaven and earth shall pass away before one dot of the T or cross of the I passes from the law. That's the Old Testament. Every word in the New Testament about biblical authority refers specifically to the Old Testament. We've elected deacons this morning and we have drawn from God's Word the plain and simple and unmistakable statements about what a deacon ought to be. And when the deacons were first selected in Acts chapter 6, they had only the Old Testament Scriptures to go by. None of the Gospels were written. Paul was not even a Christian yet in Acts chapter 6. And every word in the New Testament that talks about the authority of the Bible is talking about the Old Testament. It is as great a heresy and an abomination before God to deny the Old Testament as it is to deny the New. Friends, no tree is any good without its roots. Jesus Christ was a Jew who memorized Scripture, who honored the Scriptures, who taught the Scriptures, who commanded that they be obeyed. And if you would cut off the root, you are no Christian. No tree can grow without its roots. Here are just a few of the passages in the New Testament that talk about the authority of the Old Testament. You note-takers might want to note the references. Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus said this, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. Matthew 22, 29, Jesus answered and said, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures or the power of God. Mark 12, 24, Matthew 24, 35, Mark 13, 31, an important enough statement, it got into three Gospels. Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. John 5, 39, Jesus said, You search the Scriptures, for you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. John 10, 35, Jesus used the term graphes, the writings, which refers always to the Old Testament. And he said, These Scriptures cannot be broken. 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 17, 23 to 26. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. 
and their talk will spread like gangrene. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been led captive to do his will. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Scriptures which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Notice Paul says all Scripture... All the writings, all the Old Testament are given by God and are profitable for doctrine. 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke. Exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teachings, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Hebrews 4.12, again talking of the Old Testament. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder the bones and the marrow and even the soul and the spirit of a man. Hebrews 5, 12, For by this time you ought to be teachers, and you have need again for someone to teach you from the elementary principles of the Word of God. In 1 Peter 1, 22-25, he quoted Isaiah 48, where it says, uh, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Again, in the writings of Peter, in 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21, he talks about the prophetic word that is more sure than personal experience and says that the written word, the rhema, the written word of God is the only light in our darkness. Every word in the New Testament that speaks of the authority of the Bible talks of the Old Testament. For you see, until 300 years after Jesus, 
The New Testament writings were circulated and read, but it was not until 300 years after Jesus that the church accepted them as equal with the Old Testament. I refer you to the Baptist faith and message adopted by the Southern Baptist Convention as her statement of faith where it says the Bible and says nothing about one end of the book or the other. It says the Bible is the inspired, infallible, written word of God and has truth without any mixture of error for its content. We stand on the book and Peter says, recall the word if you are going to meet the challenge. The mother of all heresy is the denial of God's word. Any alternative to the authority of the scriptures from one end to the other is humanism, and no humanist is a Christian, for he is trusting in the mind of man and exalting it above the will and the ways of God. Then in verses 3 and 4, we are told that these false teachers reject the word. He says, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers first fell asleep, everything continues just as it was from the beginning until now. Now who are the mockers? We read in the English Bible that they are those who follow their own lust. The word lust, again, is desire. It's not a dirty word. It just means desires that come from within. The term one's own is the word in the Greek, idios. It is where we get the word idiosyncrasy, which means a trait that is peculiar to a person that makes him different than anybody else. And Peter does not name any kind of a sin here. He doesn't name any kind of a heresy. He said the mockers who must be confounded and repudiated who deny God's word are those who follow their own unique ideas without any reference to the scriptures. That is how he identifies them, whether their ideas are good, bad, or indifferent whether their goals and their desires are noble or evil, it doesn't matter if they ignore the word. They fall into this category. They assume these who deny the second coming, whom he uses as an example, assume, number one, that history is complete, that man-written history of the past is complete. And then they assume beyond that that nature is uniform. Well, you know, that idea has gone by the wayside and there's not an honest scientist in the world today who would try to say that things don't change. They know it is true. You can walk on the top of the mountains in New Mexico and Colorado or anywhere throughout the world and find fossils of fish. And finally, the enlightened scientific community has admitted, I read an article last month in a secular magazine that just maybe there was one time a universal flood. Well, you know, I'm all for intelligence, but sometimes intelligence can be very stupid. The Word of God written 25 or 1,500 years before Jesus, which has been our, in our possession since that time, says there was a flood. That's all it takes to settle it. And it's been very interesting to note until science finally has given way to the facts what explanations they used. You see, those mountaintops used to be on the bottom of the ocean. That really makes a lot of sense. 
They want me to believe that a mountaintop went from 3,000 feet below sea level to 11,000 feet above sea level, but they don't want to believe there was a flood. You see, it doesn't matter what pseudoscience says. The Word of God is accurate, period. God protected it from error. It's not a textbook on science, but there's not one faulty scientific fact in it. The book of Job, which I believe is the oldest piece of writing in the Old Testament, says that the earth is round and that God hung the world on nothing in space. And writings of that same period of time from other cultures said that God had a slave that held the world up and that the world was flat. And they say the word's not true. Any alternative to the authority of the word is humanism. And it is a faulty assumption that nature is uniform. Nothing is more certain in physical things than change. Things have not been the same since the creation. And these have rejected the Word. And then notice in verses 5 through 7, here is what I have called the fact that we are to remember the work of God. He says when they maintain this, it is concealed from them. It, esca it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens long ago were held together, were formed out of water and by water, and through water at that time the world was destroyed, being inundated, covered with water. But the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now notice in verse 5, and folks, this may be the most important thing Peter said to us. The first sentence of verse 5 says this, For when they maintain this, maintain what? That God's word's not true. Look back at verses 3 and 4. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that, and then he talks about what the word says. This word escapes means that when they reject God's word, their rejection covers up God's truth, and because they have denied God's word, they cannot understand what God said. Are you confused? Is there turmoil in your soul? It will always be so until you are saved, until you confess the sin in your life, if you are a Christian, until you quit denying God's word and obey God as far as you know you ought to obey Him. For until you do that, your rebellion against God's word will conceal the truth of God's word from you. When you say you cannot understand the word, you have said nothing about the word. You have said something about your spiritual condition. 2 Corinthians says that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. We are told to remember the work. Their rejection conceals God's Word from them. What does it conceal? Well, the specific application is the fact that not only is judgment a possibility, but in the past God has already judged the world, and God will judge the world again. At creation, God seeded the earth above on its surface and beneath the earth with enough water to destroy it. 
And when judgment came, the waters rose and the waters came down and the earth was destroyed. Just so God has seeded this world with enough fire to destroy the universe. We are told by science that this earth is a molten bed of lava surrounded by a cool crust of soil and rock about 40 miles thick in most places. And on the inside, it right now boils and bubbles. Occasionally, it breaks through to the surface and lava flows from a volcano. We know that the two most combustible of all of the elements are hydrogen and oxygen. And all God has to do is signal for one small chemical change and the air and the water and the skies and the earth will burst into flame. God has seeded her with the means of her destruction and when God's time comes, judgment will fall. Just as the world that perished was inundated by water, so this world will be inundated with fire from above and from beneath, just as it was at the flood. And then notice in verses 8 and 9, we are told to receive the word. We are told to receive the word. Do not let this one fact be concealed from you, he says, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, the Lord is not slow or tardy or slack about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us or to you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God's clock is not like ours. In God's time system, a thousand years may be of the same value as a day. And if that is true, then only two days have passed on God's clock since Jesus ascended to the Father. It seems slow to us. We wanted somebody to say this. We wanted somebody to say that God was slow because it seems that way to us. We cry with the psalmist, Oh, Lord, how long will it be? But you see, Peter says, God's not slow. God's loving and concerned for the sins of people. God's not being slow. God's being gracious. God delays in judgment because he wants people to be saved. And we are to receive the word. And since our task is to live by the word and to teach the word and to reach people by the word, and since our joy and our ministry is to see people saved, we are to thank God for the delay. We are to receive the word. Time spent is minor to the Lord compared to the importance of the accomplishment of his purpose. To a rich man, $1,000 may mean no more than a penny. And so it is with God that time is secondary to the accomplishment of his purposes. And then notice in verse 10, we are told that God will remove the world. God will remove the world. According to his word, he will destroy the heavens and the earth by fire. As I mentioned, with one small chemical change, the very components 
of water which constitutes such a great part of the earth's surface and her atmosphere will burst into flames. The earth will split, Peter says, with a roar. The air will burn. The elements will melt with fervent heat. This word roar in verse 10 is a very descriptive word in the Greek. In Greek literature, it is used for the whistling of an arrow. It is used for the hiss of a snake or the rush of wings when a flock of birds takes off. It is used for the sound of a shepherd's pipe, for the sound of filing metal against metal, for the splash of water, for sizzling and popping and for a cracking, crashing sound. And you know, somehow I believe that the truth is wrapped up in all of those. For when the time comes, the trumpet of God will sound. When the time comes, the heavens and the earth will perish with a great roar. There will be the rustling of angels' wings as judgment is pronounced. And all will happen according to God's word. The term fervent heat in verse 10 literally means to be scorched up. To be scorched up to the point of annihilation. The heavens which once gave water to destroy the earth themselves will be destroyed. Is that so hard for us to comprehend? You know, science used to think that the universe was the whole of everything that existed. Then they began to discover solar systems and galaxies. And now they believe that our universe is only a small part of creation. They say that our whole universe, not just our planet or our solar system or our galaxy, our whole universe is moving at an incredible rate, but they don't know where it's going. I do. It's going to an appointment with judgment. When this universe in which we dwell will pass away and God exercises judgment as he has promised, the second coming and the attendant judgment that the Word of God promises are the urgent reality that motivates us as the people of God to reach people for Jesus. God delays in order that men might be saved. And so the Word of God leaves us with a question this morning. Are you saved? Not are you a member of the church. Not do you work in the church. Not are you moral. Not are you good. Not do you live by the Ten Commandments. Are you saved? Was there a time in your life when as God touched your heart and it does no good until God calls you? It is not the acknowledgement of an intellectual fact. It is when God touches you. I heard a man say one time, anybody that doesn't love Jesus is crazy. And that's true. It is not an awareness that Jesus died and that you need to be saved. It is when under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, you with a broken heart of repentance, ask him to forgive your sins and ask him to live in your life. Are you saved? Are you sure? What are you doing about it? What are you doing to be a part of reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
if you are dominated by anything less important than that, you've taken your eyes off of Christ. You're rebellious against His Word, for He has commanded us one task, and that is to reach people with the gospel, with the good news that Jesus saves. Why? Because of an urgent reality. Because the trumpet will sound with the voice of the archangel and Christ shall descend and the church shall be raptured and all hell shall break loose on earth and time will be no more. It is an urgent reality. An urgent reality. Christ will come. He will judge. And today I stand on behalf of God on the authority of God's word to say, be saved today when he calls. Harden not your heart, the scriptures say. Behold, now is the time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. And Christians, I call you to a commitment to one thing, to share the gospel, to reach people for Jesus. In a moment, we're going to have an invitation I ask you specifically, because it is true, because judgment will come, because you need Jesus in your life, I ask you as we stand to make your way to the aisle to meet me or one of the staff here at the front to let us talk with you and pray with you and help you give your heart to Jesus Christ. I ask you as a Christian to come to pray in commitment, to confess your need to God, to commit yourself to what He has called you to, to let God be the judge, to let God be the boss, to let God be the administrator, and to be a soldier in the field of battle, doing battle for the souls of men. I invite you, if God would lead you as a Christian, to invest your life here to join this church, however she receives members. And I do it urgently with an awareness that we are closer today to the end than we have ever been. With an awareness that all of the requirements and all of the predictions in God's Word are being met very rapidly and that Christ is coming to call an end to human history. May we pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your Word. Lord, I ask your forgiveness when we are consumed with lesser things, when we are diverted in our attention from what you have called us to do. And I ask you specifically, Lord, today to give us as a people a sense of urgency, to touch hearts, to break Christians' hearts, to turn their eyes from all other things to Jesus. Father, I pray that you will save sinners today, those who have no background in the church and those who have been raised in it but have never been saved. I pray that you will bring lives together to join us in this ministry. I pray that you will meet our needs as we have committed our way to you. We love you. We trust you. We belong to you. We ask you to use us as you choose. I pray in Jesus' name.